0: Amen. Thank you, Chrissy. Well, we're going to look at Romans eight. Russ's favorite passage is thirty-one to thirty-nine, and but I have a math problem for you that's in this other text. So I picked this text here for you, Russ, that hopefully would make Romans eight, thirty-one to thirty-nine, all the sweeter. Sharon did not have an easy life, as Russ has outlined for us. Really, uh, so many miracles and so many provisions from the Lord. I can remember meeting with Russ more than once, and and they would use this phrase that basically, like, nothing nothing is normal with Sharon. Like, things have to go the complicated route. Like, with the doctors, it was always complicated. There was not a traditional path for Sharon, as her health wouldn't allow it. And yet God was with her, and that was his purpose. I want you to see what God has to say about this tonight. Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This text has a past, a present, and a future. The past has very painful implications for the present. The present is referred to in verse 18 as the sufferings of this present time. But the future has implications that outweigh all the sufferings in the past and the present, and the future is called glory in verse 18 and verse 21. And the glory is referred to in verse 23 as the redemption of our bodies. And when our bodies are redeemed, the whole creation is going to be redeemed. This is the good news in the midst of a difficult thing. So let's just consider the past, the present, and the future. The past. We are told in verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, frustration. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That's just commentary on Genesis chapter 3. Consider the shipwreck. G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, has this profound quote where he says, "In My haunting instinct that somehow good was not merely a tool to be used, but a relic to be guarded, like the goods from Crusoe's ship, even that had been the wild whisper of something originally wise, for according to Christianity... We were indeed the survivors of a wreck, the crew of a golden ship that had gone down from the beginning of the world. We understand that things are not as they should be. If you were to say to Sharon, things are not as they should be, she would nod her head with abundant agreement. She knew it acutely. Eden dies for all of us at some point in life where we know something is wrong with this world and it doesn't seem right or fair. Cordelius Plantinga in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, he describes the evil as a spoiling of shalom and shalom is this idea of a wholeness to our being of peace And he talks about how there's ripple effects of sin that go all the way back to the fall from when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the effects now affects our health. It affects our moral compass, how we think. It affects us psychologically, socially, politically, globally. The rivers of sin, they feed all the tributaries of life and everything's affected by sin and selfishness. That's what... Paul is saying here in Romans 8 verse 20, he's giving commentary on the fall of man. And so we live in a world, I'm giving you the bad news first, the world isn't winding up, it's winding down. There's a world where there's natural decay, there's this ruin, there's dis- dissolution, there's perishing, there's trees dying, animals dying, and then we too die. We live in this world of decay and death and decline, decomposition. And we all know that something's out of order. There's this entropy that we see and experience. And so this fall of the mankind fell into affected the whole creation. And so the past now has radically affecting the present. And now we suffer and so does the creation And now we live in a world that has lots of issues. It's radically polluted. There's too many greenhouse gases. There's a world of solar flares and radiation, poison rivers, animal kingdoms suffering, animals going into extinction, and politicians that want to jump on one side or the other to get material gain and votes. There's something about this world that's very frustrating, this purposelessness, this C.S. Lewis would say in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that it's always, always winter and never Christmas. Well, aren't you glad the story doesn't end there? That's what we're talking about tonight. You see, when you consider the glory that's to come in a renewed creation and new glorified bodies, then you realize this is not a cave. It's a tunnel that keeps going. There's there's something on the other side. The Bible says about Jacob that he worked seven years. He worked for Laban. And he said that the Bible just says they seemed to him but a few days because he knew what was on the other side, Rachel. (laughs) Rachel was the prize. What Paul is saying is that I've done the math. I've looked at the equation He's saying, I consider, that's the, that's the word legitimize It's an accounting term. It's a math term. He's saying, if you put all the suffering over here, you put all those things I mentioned, all this stuff, all that's wrong, you put it all over here on the scale, and then you put all the glory, the Hebrew word for kabod, which means heavy, and, you, and the glory over here, he's saying, there's no comparison. The scale just instantly tilts in the heavy factor is so much greater than all of these sufferings with the glory that's going to be revealed in us or to us. It can be translated either way. You see, you can compare a spoonful of water with the Atlantic Ocean. Paul is saying you can't compare our sufferings with the glory that's to come. Heaven will make amends for all. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal as the song says. The weightiness of the glory of God to be revealed in us. It says that all creation is standing on tiptoe. The creation is longing to see what we're going to look like. If we were to see Sharon right now in an unglorified state, we would, want, we would be tempted to worship her because she would be so glorious Creation standing on tiptoe. It's craning its neck. It's like Drew Brees trying to see over those six-foot-five linemen to find his receivers. He's, he, we're, creation's craning its neck is literally the, the idea here. It's craning its neck. It's trying to see what's going to happen. What are you going to look like in a glorified body? And all the groanings of this world are described as birth pains, that the creation is in pangs, And John Piper puts it like this. It's a very helpful quote. He says, if you're in a hospital and you hear a woman across the hall groan or scream, it makes all the difference in how you feel if you know that you're on the maternity ward and not the oncology unit. Why? Pain is pain, isn't it? No. Some pain leads to life and some pain leads to death. And what Paul is saying in verse 22 is that for the children of God, all pain is leading to life. All the groanings of this world are the birth pangs of the kingdom of God. And if you're part of this kingdom, a child of the king, all your sufferings are labor pangs and not death spasms. And Piper says, and I mean all of them, even the death spasms. We want to share in this glory of God. C.S. Lewis talks about this longing. He talks about these longings. And the weight of glory is my favorite sermon. And He has this profound quote. He says, we're to shine like the, stu- like the sun. We're to be given the morning star. I think I began to see what it means. In one way, of course, God has already given us the morning star. He says, you can go and enjoy the gift any fine morning if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do we want? And then he says, but we want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets and mythologies know all about it. We don't merely want to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty, to pass into the beauty, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That's why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods, he says. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into the human soul, but it can't. They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't, or not yet. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God won't one day give us the morning star and cause us to be put on the splendor of the sun, then we may sur- surmise that both ancient myths and modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. As present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of the morning, but they don't make us fresh and pure. We can't mingle with the splendors we see, but the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Some day, God willing, we shall get, get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation and its lifeless obedience, then they will put on its glory, or rather the greater glory of which creation is only the first sketch. God's making all things new. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and the little children shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over all, all the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea is what Isaiah is telling us. This creation is not destined for annihilation, it's destined for liberation, to be set free from its slavery to corruption, the futility that God subjected it to in hope. I think this is one of the clearest passages in the scripture that tells us that this earth is not gonna pass away or be destroyed in the sense of it's going out of existence. It's gonna be set free from corruption. The futility will be destroyed. The bondage to corruption will be consumed in the purifying, liberating fire of God's judgment, but the earth will remain, and there'll be no more corruption, no more futility. And the Bible talks about heaven and earth becoming one. No more crying, no more death, no more pain. And we sing about it every Christmas. We sing, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found, as far as the curse is found. Jesus came into this world, and he's changed everything. And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he gives us a theology of suffering, for he himself suffered and was snuffed out. But the third day, the grave was empty, and as he rose, we too shall rise. And so in this life, suffering and glory are intertwined. They're inseparable, and yet they're incomparable. Suffering is the road to glory, Tim Keller in his book on suffering said, Christianity teaches that contra fatalism, suffering's overwhelming. Contra Buddhism, suffering's real. Contra karma, suffering is often unfair, but contra secularism, suffering is meaningful. There's a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and to more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine suffering. Buddha says accept it. Karma says pay it. Fatalism says heroically endure it. Secularism says avoid it or fix it. It doesn't work. Jesus came for us to fix it. He killed the great Goliath, which was death and sin. And just as Israel was groaning in the wilderness and groaning Just as we groan, the Bible says God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and he knew. And he said, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel. And he made these promises that I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I'll take you to be my people. I'll be your God and you'll know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I'll bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give it to you for a possession. I'm the Lord. So what did God do in our suffering, in our bondage? He sent a redeemer, someone greater than Moses who would deliver us from a greater oppressor. And Pharaoh, Jesus has come and has changed everything. And that's our hope. And if you're here today and you've kind of checked out, maybe you've given up, and maybe you're like the self-pity party of one and that's kind of the permanent place for you, consider Jesus. Anne Voskamp in her book A Thousand Gifts says, if trust must be earned, Hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into his brow, your name on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. And so yes, this is tough, this loss, but it doesn't compute. We do the logic, we do the math, And there's glory to come. And Sharon is there. Put your trust in Christ. And that will be your hope for eternity. And it's a real hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for Christmas. That you came into this world. You didn't just come on Good Friday and die on a cross. But you came and entered into this world and suffered were tempted in every way like we are yet without sin we know you were despised and rejected and that we esteemed you not and how we praise you that you took our debt and nailed it to a cross we praise you that you rose on the third day and that you're coming again to make all things new thank you that you've gone to prepare a place for us and have taken Sharon to be with yourself Lord, give comfort to your people, to each of us as we fight the good fight of faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.